Good morning, listeners. <laughs> you like that intro? I think it's a great intro. <laughs> I wanted to start by introducing myself. My name is Marita, and I'm going to be hosting this show that you are tuned into, Single Mother Talks. And I just want to go over exactly what my initiative is here. Um, essentially, there is a stigma around single motherhood and rightfully so there are statistics that are disturbing you know um and a lot of the things that single mothers go through are just <laughs> they're, they're extremely extremely tough and not really talked about or well known or you know while well, some of it's well known which is what contributes to the stigma but and the help around it is, you know, <laughs> there's not enough help if you're really doing it on your own and you're, you know, living in poverty. And so um, a little bit about me. I became a single parent, a single mother. Well, I, I got pregnant at 17. At 17. So I was a teen mother um, and I had gotten in, involved in, in an abusive relationship and so, um, you know, I ended up uh, cutting the father out a couple years later, seeing that that was going nowhere and I didn't want any of that to be part of my son's life. And so, um, and I'm, you know, it's uh, 13 years later and I'm happy with that decision. I did the right thing. Um, it would have been far worse had I tried to do this back and forth thing where um, my son would have been affected. So, so, um, yeah, at 19, I guess, is when I really was completely on my own. And I struggled for a full decade going through the worst adversity, um, you know, living in poverty. And I didn't have any help. Um, I was away from my family. I didn't have babysitters and whatever. I didn't have um, child support. I didn't have a good circle of friends. I was always very isolated. Um, I lived often in the middle of nowhere. I'll talk about that later on. But um, so I really went through um, the worst of single parenthood single motherhood. And um, so I know very well the really harsh realities of, you know, what what you go through, what you experience and, and how taxing mentally, emotionally, spiritually, um, how it changes you, how you develop, um, you know, and, and I would like to talk about it. I'd like to talk about it. Um, ultimately, um, I want to create a, a place where single mothers can connect. I want single mothers to listen to this and to not feel alone or ashamed or guilty, you know, and instead of there being this stigma, um, where we attack single mothers and we make fun of them and we judge them, um, we understand where they're coming from. We understand where they're coming from and, you know, why they might be behaving that way. Because, you know, so much of the time it's not, 
you know, it's not their fault. It's just, it's a lack of resources. And, you know, to be able to develop as a human being on your own, you know, in, in like evolution to your, your personality and your self growth. And, you know, that's hard enough as it is when you throw a child into the mix and you got to be responsible and be in, be responsible for the evolution of this child or children. And it's a lot. And on top of that, you're working or you're going to school or you're often dealing with, um, a lot of, you know, friction with a, with a partner, um, or a complete lack of partner, lack of a partner. And, um, you know, you don't have help available to you and all of your immediate needs available to you. Um, so I'm going to talk about all of these things. So I welcome you to single mother talks. So let's pull up some statistics about single motherhood. The statistics that are contributing to the stigma. I'll start with some from BC, Canada. That's my province and arguably one of the most expensive places to live. Um, so it says approximately half of lone parent families in BC live in poverty with 85% of these families being female led. Food insecurity is experienced by one in three Canadian women who are solo parenting. One in six Canadian children under the age of 18 is affected by household food insecurity. Children who live in single parent families are more than three times more likely, likely to live in poverty than children in two parent families. And statistics from the US. Single motherhood has grown so common in America that today 80% of single parent families are headed by single mothers. Nearly a third live in poverty. About four out of 10 children were born to unwed mothers. Nearly two thirds were born to mothers under the age of 30. Today, one in six children under the age of 18, a total amount of 12.7 million are being raised without a father. Around half, 52.3% of single mothers have never married. Almost a third are divorced. 18.4% are either separated or widowed. Half have one child, 30% have two. About two thirds are white, one third black. So it goes on. It goes on, you know, with these disturbing numbers. And, you know, I'm, I'm sitting back and I'm reading this and I'm just thinking to myself, wow, like, <laughs> why isn't this a bigger deal? You know, and it blows my mind because it's like, this is, this is the next generation these are the children who are going to grow up. They're going to go out into society, you know, take their positions in the world, have their influence, you know, <laughs> affect people's lives. Like these are, these are the people that we're sending out into the world, a big chunk of the next generation. Why isn't this a bigger deal? Why isn't there more resources for single mothers? So, being in a fatherless home has all kinds of impacts on children. Some of these impacts, if we want to read some statistics from being in a fatherless home, let's get the numbers here. 
85% of youth who are currently in prison grew up in a fatherless home. <laughs> that one alone, 85% of youth who are currently in prison grew up in a fatherless home. Seven out of every 10 youth that are housed in state operated correctional facilities, including detention and residential treatment come from a fatherless home. Children from fatherless homes are twice as likely to drop out from school before graduating than children who have a father in their lives. Wow. Girls who live in a fatherless home have a 100% higher risk of suffering from obesity than girls who have their father present. Teen girls from fatherless homes are four times more likely to become mothers before the age of 20. <laughs> oh my goodness. In 2011, 44% of children in homes headed by a single mother were living in poverty. Just 12% of children in married couple families were living in poverty. Children who live in a single parent home are more than two times more likely to commit suicide than children in a two-parent home. 72% of Americans believe that a fatherless home is the most significant social problem and family problem that is facing their country. Only 68% of children will spend their entire childhood with an intact family. 75% of rapists are motivated by displaced anger that is associated with feelings of abandonment that involves their father. Living in a fatherless home is a contributing factor to substance abuse with children from such homes accounting for 75% of adolescent patients being treated in substance abuse centers. This goes on. <laughs> you know, these, all of these statistics go on and on and on. And it's just so disturbing. Every single one of them, every single one of them is so gut-wrenching. You know, those are big numbers. So why isn't there more available to us? So I hope, you know, that is the starting point for shedding a little bit of light on how serious this issue is, you know, and how unfair it is in some cases that so much judgment is placed on these women dealing with these situations, you know, trying to do it all. So some more perspective, you know, what are the basic things that you need to have covered as a single mother for your family, right? You need shelter, you need food, you need um, financial security, you need support, you need childcare, um, you probably need therapy for yourself, um, you know, your medical needs. Um, so, you know, all of these things are... <laughs> There are resources that are in place to help you get these things, but they're not easy to get and oftentimes not um, the safest route or the most comfortable route, you know, uh, for example. So what is it like to be on welfare? Welfare does not, you know, I've been on welfare at various times in my life. Of course I have, you know, I've used, I've had to use, um, food vouchers or vouchers for like, um, baby formula. And I've had to use the food bank. I've had to use whatever, whatever help I could get my hands on. 
I remember, you know, having a food voucher for like 20 bucks and me orchestrating my day around that $20, you know, strapping up my, my son into my stroller and walking like six blocks to go and get this food voucher just so I could pick up, you know, milk or a couple groceries or whatever to sustain us for like, you know, a couple days, right? Because I was desperate. I was desperate. When you have no help, you don't have people that can just lend you money. You don't have a family to, you know, go to for support. Um, and so some of these women are put in these situations and <laughs> it's really like that in itself, right? Having to, having to pack yourself up in your stroller and walking all that distance and getting all of this and whatever, you know, I've been in situations where you know, it was a really far ways that I had to walk. <laughs> I remember, I remember living in Red Deer for a year, thank God, only a year. Um, and I, I lived on the top of this hill and I didn't have a vehicle until like way later in life. I, there's no hope in hell that I could ever afford one. And I had to walk my stroller so far into town just to reach some kind of a grocery store, right? Like you're not going to go to a gas station where, you know, things are priced three, three times as much. So <laughs> I got really skinny, <laughs> but, um, so back to welfare, you know, welfare doesn't provide you with enough money. The, the amounts on welfare are ridiculous. If somebody is on welfare, they're just, they're barely, barely getting their needs met. Just, just barely. I don't know why that is, you know, um, it's, it, it's very unrealistic. It doesn't help for sure. Um, I mean, there are things like, uh, you can apply for, um, you know, um, sort of a crisis supplement and where they'll cover things like overdue utilities and, you know, a need for clothing and stuff like that. But pardon me, nobody tells you these things they're not, they don't tell you that. They don't give you your options. They make it difficult on purpose, you know? Um, so you really have to jump through hoops. You really have to press and ask and figure these things out because nobody's going to tell you. There's a certain way that welfare operates where, um, you know, like even, even, even their buildings are in these locations that will, will never come up on, you know, Google Maps, so you can't easily find it. You have to call this number and call that number, and then you got to get the secret code to the address, you know, that's located in, you know, some tucked away building. You don't even know if you're at the right spot until you see the sign on the door, and then you're like, oh, okay, the ministry, right? And let's talk about these buildings. <laughs> I hated, I hated going to these places because I always felt unsafe. You got a big collection of shady people, right? They have security. They have security at these places because there is such, you know, th these are all hungry, desperate people and you got a collection of them, right? And in hungry, desperate times. And that makes you a little bit, uh, <laughs> you know, uneasy as a person, <laughs> like these individuals, right? They're going there, not in a good state of being. Um, and so you have a collection of these individuals, right? And it was not uncommon for fights to break out, for people to start yelling for, you know, whatever, right? So they had security at these places. 
and they were really shady. And depending on where you live, if you live in like a big city or whatever, it's even worse. I lived in Surrey for six years. <laughs> that, you know, is not a, there, there's a very, there's a lot of poverty. There's a definitely a, a, a big group of poverty stricken people in Surrey. And it was sketchy and it made me uncomfortable, right? I'm a young, um, attractive single mother, right? Uh, perce perceivably to, to, to predators. And, you know, I'm, I've got my, my child, I, I'm feeling vulnerable. I'm, you know, totally vulnerable. And I'm, and I'm going to these places with my child being shoved in this room with a bunch of shady people. So, you know, that wasn't fun, but you're desperate. You have no choice. You do what you got to do. So, you know, like, so that's a little bit of, you know, reality around, around the whole welfare thing, right? It's, it's very, um, you know, like I only learned to know what they offer because I, you know, was in situations where, you know, I had to push or I had to ask or whatever. And I just sort of learned these things along the way. But if somebody doesn't tell you what's available to you, you don't know what's there. So I don't know why that is if the goal is to, to help people. So, you know, another thing that, um, I took advantage of that I mentioned was the food bank. You know, that's a, that's a whole other thing, right? Like, like I don't get me wrong, right? The food bank, it's free food and it sustained us. And I'm very grateful for that. But, you know, some of the hoops to get, you know, involved with the food bank, right? They, they require, you know, proof of address, et cetera, et cetera. If I can remember correctly, um, you know, and I have been turned away. I've been turned away. And, you know, when I was living in Surrey specifically, I think that's when I went through the hardest times of my poverty. And, you know, cause that was when I was a, when I first became totally on my own, just came out of an abusive relationship. And so, you know, I was in Surrey and, um, heavily relied on the food bank and it's a big place, right? So, so I had to take, first, I had to walk to the bus stop and the nearest bus stop to me, the one that I had to go to was a 20, 25 minute walk. Um, so, you know, I'd pack up my little <laughs> chubby little child in, in, in my stroller and have to walk that distance. And then I got to get on the, the bus, right? You've also got to have that bus fare in place, which is, <laughs> which was not feasible for me some days, right? Some days I had nothing, literally nothing. And I would be scraping the corners of my room, rooms looking for change, looking for something, right? And there was a lot of times where I got on the bus and I was just, you know, I was, I was a little bit short and, you know, so that was really nerve wracking. I was like, oh my God, am I going to be turned away? And then if I got turned away in that moment over a, a stupid bus ticket, which was like a dollar and 25 cents, that's my food for the day. You know, I can't, I can't access the food to feed, feed my family over not having a, a bus ticket that was a dollar 25, you know? So it was like, there's so much anxiety, right? If I was short or something, I was just like, oh my God, am I going to eat today? And which seems crazy, which seems ridiculous, right? But I'm telling you, this is poverty. And so, you know, back to my story, I'd get on the bus, right? And then I would have to take a bus, which took another 20 minutes, half an hour to get down to um, the SkyTrain, right? And then 
if I can remember correctly. And then I think it was near the SkyTrain where I had to go. It was still like a good 20 minutes. But so I get off the SkyTrain. I walk my 20 minutes, right? I get to this food bank. Again, this is, a, this is a, you know, an area where there's a lot of shady people and I'm young and I'm vulnerable and I feel uncomfortable. And, you know, most of the time I never ran into any issues, right? But you've got like people, predators, you know, giving you the wrong attention. I didn't want, I wasn't there for that. I was just desperate. And so, you know, I remember getting there and one time, right, I'm, I'm all ready. I got my child with me and I'm just like, I, you know, I called ahead. I need to you know, have this in place for myself. And, you know, um, the lady said that I didn't have, you know, the proper documentation to secure a box. And so she's like, oh, okay, you know, don't worry. We'll put together, you know, something for you or whatever. Right. So she gave me a few things like, you know, I think it was like 10 potatoes, a little bit of milk and uh, like, I don't know, some cookies or something or whatever. Right. But it was not like a what I needed and I'd come all of that way, you know, and then sometimes um, you catch it just when it's closing, right? Like they only have a certain window for a short time that they're open for and then they'll just, they'll, they'll close and you get there right at the end and they'll be out of food and it's like, no, and it's, oh, it's just, you know, again, I'm not being a snob at free food, but, but in terms of helping people, you know, this was, this was really devastating for me some days, right? And um, the quality and, and what food was provided at these food banks, um, it was just kind of bottom of the barrel stuff. It was not healthy food. The produce was always going bad. Um, you know, what you had to choose from were a bunch of processed and packaged things that came with so much sodium and salt and garbage right and <clears throat> you know hopefully things have improved but you know 10 years ago um this is what it was kind of like and the meat there's no they don't give you they give you like two days worth of you know protein there's you know they don't give you a hell of a lot of the actual stuff that's good for you they just give you all of this processed packaged shit so <clears throat> pardon me so that was really, you know, that that was the reality. Um, something else, let's see, that I needed to take advantage of um, during those times, right? So, <clears throat> pardon me, um, bus tickets were a thing, right? Um, I remember, so WorkBC sort of works with uh, the ministry to, you know, get people employed, and all of that and work bc will provide bus tickets and so you know but it's you gotta you gotta go there you have to be able to get there to go and pick up those bus tickets you know in person right so again walking you know bus skytrain whatever you need to do to get there when you've already got nothing so you're just always you're always extremely stressed out you're always ex exhausted right and you know i remember um, if I can, oh, Jesus, this was such a long time ago. I remember getting kicked off. I remember getting kicked off of welfare one time because I couldn't hold my job, I believe it was. And, you know, 
I they, they give you the option of like, you know, uh, forming a, an argument, right? So you can sort of present your case. And um, I remember writing this thing up, right? And I was just honest. I just poured my heart out. I'm just like, this is what's going on for me. And, you know, I just, it was along the lines of, I'm just feel so emotionally overwhelmed and I feel so unstable. I'm stressed out. This happened, this happened, blah, blah, blah. Right. And this is kind of before I learned that they don't really care <laughs> about that. <laughs> you know, like, so like nobody, nobody cares. These, these places, it's like a, a numbers thing. Right. Um, and so, so that wasn't a good enough reason. And I was kicked off. <laughs> I'm trying to remember what I did afterwards, but anyways, um, back to the point. Um, what was something else that I took advantage of that I wanted to talk about? Um, <clears throat> bus tickets and give me a moment. Give me a moment. Um, oh, right. Okay. So childcare, <laughs> childcare <laughs> in BC. Um, I imagine it's pretty similar everywhere else, but, um, that's like, what is the point of working? <laughs> what What is the point of, if you're on welfare, right? And childcare is as much as it is, like, what is the point of working? There is child's, childcare subsidy programs in place, right? Which is helpful, but it's still like two thirds of everything you make. You're, you're working for nothing. You may as well just stay at home on welfare. <laughs> like, it's just, you know, it's, it's just impossible. You know, the, the way that things are set up, you know, these, these supposedly helpful resources available to people living in poverty, you know, are they really helpful? <laughs> you, you have to work twice as hard to, you know, sustain yourself and, and keep yourself like from drowning. Right. And then you suffer the consequences of having these things, you know, get taken away from you or not available to you at all. If you can't, you know, get yourself from point point A to B, even even though you're struggling and you're like in total survival mode. Which brings me to the next thing that I want to talk about. You know, so so I wrote a little excerpt about this, and it's actually available in a YouTube video as well um, that I did that you can access from my website singlemothertalks.com, and. Uh, or my YouTube channel, Single Mother Talks. <laughs> I have to get used to this plugging, plugging in my information here. Um, so it's called Why Single Mothers Compromise. So in this piece, I try to explain to the best of my ability why single mothers find themselves in these predicaments where they have to make shitty decisions. You know, because oftentimes, right, you, you judge people based on their decisions because decisions lead to outcome or consequence, right? So what I try to explain is that when you have um, little or very poor options all across the board, no matter what option you go with, you're going to have some kind of a consequence, right? But the option that a single mother is going to go with is the one that, you know, keeps her family alive, right? So shelter, food, whatever. So, you know, there's an example that I talk about where, you know, say you have a job and you are late for work and you 
you know, to, to no fault of your own, you know, maybe the baby was really difficult or whatever. And, and your babysitter showed up late or whatever it is, like you have a justifiable reason. And so, so say you're late for work, right? And you have no bus tickets. You cannot walk there, you know, in time, say it's like an hour away, um, by SkyTrain or bus or whatever. And you're out of bus tickets. You have no money. How the hell am I going to get there? right? You're on your last leg. Maybe you've been late a couple times before. It's a desperate situation. So, so the prerogative in terms of survival, you know, for a single mother supporting her family is she needs to get to work so that she can feed her family so that they don't end up on the street. You know, it's important. And so, and for those of you arguing right now in, in your head, well, she should have, you know, better prepared herself, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, no, <laughs> it's like, there's so many there's so many things that come up that are out of your control as a single single mother and when you are in this 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 state of poverty, right? Like, you know, maybe your uh, abusive father, you know, decided to show up and you had to call the police and you're up all night and whatever. Like, how are you, how are you going to prepare for that? And believe me, situations like that happen all the time when you're when you're at the bottom of the barrel when it comes to single motherhood, right? There are just things that come up that you just, you can't plan for. And so you're in this situation, you got to get to work, right? And then you've got, say, the neighbor. Now he's been, you know, looking at you with a fondness, <laughs> you know, and you don't want anything to do with him because, you know, you're just, you, you feel uneasy about him or you're, you know, you just don't want it. And so <clears throat> you have been avoiding him, you know, giving him, talking to him, whatever, right? But all of a sudden you're in this predicament where you have to get to work <clears throat> and this guy just happens to be outside and he sees you and, you know, say, say you're out there because you're like, you're trying to make phone calls and you're trying to figure out how to, how to get to work, right? And he's just like, oh, what's going on? He's like, do you need a ride somewhere? Right? In your mind, you're like, oh, no. <laughs> no, I, I don't want to take this ride, you know, because I know the outcome of this, the consequences, this person is going to see this, you know, as some sort of, you know, um, invitation into my life somehow, right? And before you argue that that's not the case, let me tell you, over my years of experience, there is a certain language that happens between men and women where, you know, for some reason, when men do things, Okay, a lot of men, I should say, a lot of men do this. When certain men will do things for you, it's like it's like this nonverbal exchange, right? Where suddenly, you know, either they're your friend or they have this little tiny in into your life. And when you have somebody that's like heavily, you know, set on pursuing you, right? If you all of a sudden take their help, it's like it's like you're giving them some sort of access, you don't know, no matter what you say no matter what you say, right? They're always going to pay more attention to you, whatever the case may be, right? It's like some, some kind of consent there. And so, you know, so you're in this situation and what are you going to do? You're going to let this guy drive you to work so that you can have money, so that you can feed your children, so that you can have a roof over your head, so you can survive, so you don't end up on the street, you know, and believe me, the circumstances are dire like that. And so, or are you going to lose your job? 
what do you think the mother is going to choose, right? She's going to go with getting a ride from this guy, right? And then she's just going to buckle up and she's going to say, okay, all right, I'm in control of this. You know, I, you know, I can just set these clear boundaries and, and whatever. <clears throat> but as a result of that, right, there's, you know, a lot of men who will look at a single mother as vulnerable, right? And not take her as seriously or be respectful as respectful, um, you know, because she's a single mother and she's vulnerable, right? Like, I hate to say it, but that's the truth of the th of, of things. I, you know, I can't even tell you how many times, like I was seen as prey or, or somebody that was an easy target to men, right? Um, so my point is that when your options are this barren, right? And this happens in all kinds of scenarios, right? It's just that these options are so, you know, they're, they're not good options. Every single one of them, every single one of them is going to have, is going to have a consequence of some kind. And so, you know, she takes this ride, she gets to work, she's able to do her thing and it coincides with her immediate needs of survival, right? And, but the result of that is now you're living next to this guy who now thinks that, you know, you've got some familiarity there, right? And then, you know, it might lead to him paying more attention to you or him, you know, showing up at your house or something or, you know, starting to, you know, buy you things or, or whatever. It's all of this stuff that's coming despite how many times you say no, right? He's not going <laughs> to, a lot of the time... You know, you know, these guys that are, that are the kind of guys who would target a woman like that, they're not going to be respectful or get the point or, or whatever. Right. And it's because you've, you've taken that help from them that they now think that they have some sort of, some sort of hold or foothold in your life. Right. So, and there's all these consequences that come from, from choosing one of these barren options. Right. And so you look at that from the outside and you're just like, it's easy to judge. It's just like, why, why would you take that ride? And it's just like, um, because I don't want to be homeless, <laughs> you know, like those, these are literally the options, right? So, so these decisions that come across as poor, poor decisions from the outside, they're, they're not poor decisions. It's not a preferred decision. It's just literally the only decision that you had <laughs> at the time, right? And, you know, and so it opens up a new can of worms in terms of what the mother has to deal with, right? And each of these poor decisions that she has to choose kind of does that. It opens up a new set of stresses, and it keeps on piling on all of this stress and adversity and yeah. And so, you know, sometimes you're just, you're dealing with this web of things that have, you know, not been this clean cut, unconditional path, right? And it causes you to sort of lose the trust and self-respect you have with yourself as a single parent, single mother. <laughs> um, and, you know, when your relationship with yourself is affected like that and you, you feel guilty or shameful, you know, for, for choosing this option, because you can't help but do that if it's a shitty option you're going to feel some degree of shame, but you just got to, you know, you just got to swallow that. You just got to 
push it down, keep your chin up and, you know, try to stay on top of things and do the best you can. So, you know, it's, uh, if I could just emphasize something here, it is because the options are so shitty (laughs) that we make these shitty decisions. It's not like there's, it's not like, (laughs) you know, here, here's a hundred dollars from an anonymous person, no strings attached, you know, no consequences whatsoever. This is a lifeline, you know, somebody's going to come and save you. (laughs) It's like, that doesn't exist. It doesn't exist when you are living in poverty and you have no help. It doesn't exist. So just a segue from this, this web of compacting complications and, you know, what I said earlier about um, being seen as prey um, to a lot of people and not having as much respect in places that you go and, you know, cause there's this stigma and whatever, right? Like I experienced that for sure. I had things, you know, happen that, you know, they wouldn't have, if I had a man, if I was a complete family, you know, there's definitely, you know, especially when you're, when you're dealing with men, um, you know, I talk about, one of these things as an example in one of my YouTube videos that stands out to me because it just it's just so ridiculous to me I uh you know for example when my son was three or four just just a little just a little guy um he was going to this daycare and he had made friends with this little girl at this daycare and and uh so we went to the park and so, sorry, what happened between my my son and this little girl was that my son sort of, you know, had troubles expressing his emotions and sometimes he'd have little outbursts and and whatever. So he was rude to this little girl a couple times, right? But he's three. <laughs> so we were at this park and we saw this little girl and her father and her grandfather at this park. And so you know, we're all there together. And, and this, the father starts talking shit about my son with an earshot of me to the grandfather. He called him a little ruffian and just, you know, just looked like a total asshole saying it. And, um, and, uh, so he said it because he didn't think that I would do anything about it. He had no respect for me and it bothered me to my core because I knew that if I had, you know, some tall, you know, masculine partner there with me, he wouldn't have said that. And so, you know, there was a lot of changes that happened to me that I want to talk about. Um, But just to finish the story, right, I knew how important it was in those moments for me to address the situation if I wanted respect for my environment. So, you know, I talk about having a lot of rage in my early years and, you know, I wound up going up to the guy and talking to him, um, and, and fixing the situation, right? Excuse me. Did you just, did I hear you say that about my son? You know, you know that these are children, right? And that they're learning and they're growing and something along those lines. And, and uh, I don't think he took it very well. It wasn't like we made peace or anything. Your son, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it was a long time ago. I can't remember exactly what was said. But um, so, 
you know, it was so important for me to do that because if my son was to see me take, you know, some kind of abuse or, or take something like that. And, you know, it's so important, especially I feel like for, for, you know, a son, you know, growing up with a, with a single mother, it's so important for her to be able to take control in those situations and feel safe and feel like mom is, you know, capable of kicking someone's ass if need be needs to feel, he needs to feel protected. And, you know, I just felt like that was so important. So regardless of whoever I thought I was, I had to become this person. And I knew that I did, you know, subconsciously. So I knew that I had to become more authoritative and disciplinarian and a person that spoke with confidence and demanded respect from my environments. And this is something that just happened. And I didn't really have time to sort of have this introspection until years later. And I, you know, I looked back on this, but, but it was, it was very, it was a strange time because you could see me morph as a person. You know, I was very anxious, shy, quiet, feminine, soft-spoken, um, extremely timid. <clears throat> I never, never stood up for myself in the abusive relationship that I had that sort of kicked off my life with my son. Um, I never stood up for myself. I just always took it and I was devastated. And every day I was, you know, bawling my eyes out and just so fearful. I was so scared of, you know, this person, <clears throat> you know, that being said, um, it's all, you know, now it's like, it's water under the bridge. Uh, a few years later, I ended up meeting up with him and it's just, you know, he knows what he did and he, he pays for it, you know, gravely. And, and I hold nothing, um, against him to this day. And I just wish him nothing but, but peace. But <clears throat> so in those years, you know, I just took it and I was devastated and I noticed this hardness um, came from me after that relationship was over. I became very cutthroat and emotionless and I think it was definitely a way of throwing my guard up after that relationship. But, you know, and it really started with, um, you know, I went through a time where my mom ended up coming down and living with me for a bit. And so I had a little bit of freedom. You know, I still lived in this tiny, I think it was like 600 square feet, tiny little basement suite in Surrey. <laughs> this thing was so small and the way that they built it, you couldn't, um, you couldn't open the oven all the way. It would crash. It would crash halfway open into the other counter. It was the most ridiculous little basement suite ever, but I spent three years there. So anyways, my mom came down and stayed with me there and I had a little bit of um, <clears throat> freedom, you know, but my mom, she's, she's a single mother as well, right? Like my dad left us when we were um, a little bit older, but they always sort of had this instability in their relationship. And so she wasn't well off or anything. Um, and she came and stayed with me. So I had a little bit of freedom. And so I started to go out and like go and like date. Right. But it wasn't like actual sincere dating. I just wanted to go out and be free. Like I 
just, you know, I didn't make the healthiest decisions during that time, but it was like suffocating for a couple of years. And then all of a sudden I had for the first time ever, this ability to like go out and, and whatever. And I remember during that time, um, I had this twisted sense of, you know, taking great pleasure in not giving a shit about, um, the feelings of men. I didn't care. I was like, I just was not honest. I didn't have, you know, all of these things like integrity and honesty and these things later on, I learned probably about five years later, five or six years later. And so, you know, there's something weird in me that happened where I just was emotionless. I couldn't you know, connect, I couldn't feel, and I didn't have a fucking problem with it. (laughs) Like, I, I just, I didn't care. I didn't care. It was like, I was treated this way. And, and this is stuff that I wasn't conscious of. I wasn't like making the decision to be a bitch. It was just, I couldn't feel and I didn't care. And I think that hardness developed after, you know, my relationship my abusive relationship. And, uh, you know, what also contributed to it was, I remember distinctly, um, there was a scenario where, you know, my son was two and we were in the middle of a grocery store. And this is when he started to sort of, um, give me attitude, (laughs) you know, and start giving me a bit of a hard time. And I was in a grocery store and I remember he was just a little two-year-old and he was throwing a fit And he was just, you know, swinging his hands and like hitting me. And I'm there feeling so uncomfortable because I don't know what to do. You know, at this time I was just maternal. I was just maternal and I didn't know how to handle the situation. I didn't know how to be authoritative or take control or be a disciplinarian or, you know, any of that. And I, and I remember from that moment on, that was a distinct moment on where all of a sudden something changed in me where, you know, there's no, there's nobody there. Nobody is there to handle this situation, but me and something clicked inside me. And from that moment on, pardon me, I became mom and dad. I started morphing more and more into this role that I knew my son needed. And specifically, I think because I had a boy, I think that he needed more of um, my disciplinarian and authoritative side, um, you know, for him to respect who I was deeply, you know, as the same way he, he would respect a strong father. And so I felt called you know, um, on some level that I wasn't aware of at the time, like I said, all of these things just sort of naturally happened. And I look back on them with introspection, but so I started becoming this person, right. And then that coupled with the fact that I just had come out of this awful, awful relationship. And I was a little bit disconnected from myself, right? Like I became very hard, a very cutthroat person who didn't have empathy, who didn't give a shit you know, and if there were situations where, you know, I had to 
handle it boldly, I did. You know, I, I talk about going to these welfare offices and feeling uncomfortable and whatever. Well, you'd, you'd never guess because as soon as I felt that vulnerability, I would just, you know, I would straighten my back out. I would find that voice in the pit of my stomach. I would keep my chin up. And because those were the most important moments for me to act like a force that you needed to respect so that I would not be targeted, so that I would not be a victim, you know, for somebody. So I would not be perceived that way. So, you know, in all of these situations, I just felt so on guard with everybody in my immediate world and doing whatever I needed to do. When inside, I was just, you know, the opposite. I was, I, but it was how I needed to be perceived in the world to be able to, you know, not invite, um, the, you know, anything that wouldn't be favorable to me. And I also needed to be this way because my son needed to see me as a strong person. You know, he needed to, and I knew that. And so I became that. And so, you know, like I said, these, these, these changes happened to me and, um, you know, I didn't have, you know, I was, I was very soft-spoken before. I remember this very distinctly and very shy and, um, you know, and I had this, this feeling also of, you know, how that abusive relationship affected me. I thought to myself that I would never, I would never make, allow somebody to make me feel helpless ever again. And this is actually something, this is something that has stayed with me my whole life to some degree. You know, I am reactive in the sense that when I feel like somebody is trying to hurt me or harm me, or there's like um, some undertone of manipulation or something like that, I get very defensive and aggressive and you know i find that voice and i straighten out and you know big posture big voice and i and i just face it that way and that's something that i mean now in my life i would like to learn how to unravel that you know but i feel like it's it's something that i had to do so often that it sort of um attached itself to my personality and I've, and I developed that way, you know, cause there's, you know, when you're, you know, stable and whatever, like there, there's a power in being feminine, right? There's, you know, it's, it's not, it is nice to be able to embrace these, these things, these blessings that we have as women, right? Like we can disarm situations with our femininity, femininity, you know, when you're confronted with sort of like these high tension situations and you're a soft feminine woman going into that situation, it doesn't take much for the tension to just fall away because you are that person having that influence on that situation, right? Like there is there is a superpower, like a blessing in being feminine, right? And that's something that I 
you know, I'm, I'm trying and would love to, and I'm, I'm, you know, this is sort of my goal. I would like to be able to unravel this, this confrontational um, aspect of myself to, to be, you know, more feminine for that to be more part of my being. Um, because there's a lot of benefits to that, you know, um, it, it's, I, you know, now that my son is older, like, I think you, you really put in the first years, right? The, the rules and the respect and, and whatever. And I, and I feel like I've done a very efficient job of that. And I feel like, honestly, now I can be more maternal and it's more of what my son needs right now. And so, you know, to be able to do that, to finally step into my more nurturing side and be more maternal at this phase of life where I'm a little bit more stable and, you know, um, it's not these situations where, you know, I have to come across a certain way, but just being, going back to my point about, um, you know, not having this sort of a strong capacity for empathy. Um, you know, I'd like to add that it was also sort of disturbing how much that made me more desirable to men when I didn't care. <laughs> you know, I find that disturbing. And I guess that just sort of plays into the the hard to get narrative. Um, but I would just literally <laughs> treat these men, you know, not very well, just in the sense that I was not um, reciprocating. Right. Um, I was sort of distant and calling all the shots and just being very emotionless and whatever. And that apparently made me more appealing, which I find a little bit disturbing. But, um, you know, there was a certain time in my life where, you know, I, cause I, when I started sort of getting past that first part where I was the most confrontational, right. And things started to settle down a little bit. I had a little more time for introspection when I moved into these places where, we're in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of a forest somewhere, um, right? Because that sort of became what was appealing to me. Um, I moved around a lot in my life. And with every move, I tried to get closer to something that made me happy. And what made me happy was being um, with nature. That's one thing I knew for sure. And so I would choose these places that were, you know, like a cottage in the wood or, woods or something. And then you got this time. and And so... I started sort of becoming very self-aware and noticing the differences between myself and how other people behaved. And, and I remember just having this distinct sort of realization that, that I was very detached from my empathy because, you know, from putting that into practice for such a long time and, you know, like seeing something awful happen to somebody and not having that inclination to go, Oh, you know, are you okay running over there doing whatever I can, which is what I do now. Um, but back then it was just so easy for me to just turn it off, to just not care, you know? And I wondered why, because I was really disturbed by that. I was like, why don't I feel more for other people's suffering? And it was just, this hardness being put into practice and also possibly a conserving of energy, you know, knowing that I only had sort of this ability to give, um, for my immediate world. And I, and I knew that I couldn't, you know, it was just very taxing. And so 
you know, perhaps that's what it was as well. But, you know, noticing that was, was a little weird. I, I felt, I remember thinking to myself, am I sociopathic? Is that, you know, what's happening here? And so, um, I started to see the, um, importance of, you know, developing that in myself again. And, um, you know, what comes to mind is I think what really, really helped me do that was, um, uh, falling in love. What really helped me do that was, was falling in love because, um, when you're, you know, being intimate with somebody, right. Especially for women, it's like a, it's like a involuntary surge of hormones when it's a very healthy thing and it's out of love and whatever, there's this involuntary surge of oxytocin and, you know, and we bond when, you know, through orgasm and when we're having sex with somebody we love. Right. And so I was just flooded by all of these hormones out of nowhere that sort of weren't readily available and being produced in my day-to-day life um, because I had nothing that was sort of encouraging that in myself. And so when that started happening, I noticed myself start to change and just change in a very drastic way, very drastic way. It was the most, it was the most healing time in my life that I've ever had. I felt so just, um, loved and confident and, and, you know, and I knew that a big part of that was literally because of the hormonal imbalances that I had, you know, thinking about all that stress, all that cortisol in my body, um, all of that survival stuff. Right. And so when you're, you know, affected this way where your physical body is just like changing because of, you know, this relationship that you've gotten into and this love, um, mutually happening, right. Um, yeah, so, so it changed it, pardon me. So it changed me. Um, and I started feeling more connected and I started having the ability to care more and to love. And that was really amazing. You know, love is really amazing. It just, it can deeply heal parts of you that you're just so out of touch with. Um, yeah, so that is another, that's a conversation for another time. I would like to talk about the, you know, relationships and love, you know, as a single mother for sure, but it's a, it's such a huge topic. Um, I think I want to wrap this up for now, but just sort of an introduction into, you know, what I'd like to talk about and, and the deep disturbing realities of being in this state, starting from nothing, being at the bottom of the barrel, right? That that's just so, so like embarrassing for a lot of women to talk about and, and shameful and you feel guilt and all of this stuff. And it's just, you know, no wonder it's not talked about. No wonder it's so taboo, right? Like who wants to admit to any of these things? It's not, you know, like I wasn't going around telling people that I was on welfare. Like it's not something to be proud of. It's just something you have no choice, right? So So I'm going to wrap this up for now and um, thank you for listening 
And I will see you on the next podcast, hopefully. <laughs> Bye for now.